Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Uh, welcome to Race and Democracy. We are very excited to have uh, two special guests with us today. Um, uh, two uh, doctoral students or graduate students who are part of the CSRD, Center for the Study of Race and Democracy, a fellows program. Uh, we've got Cassie Marie Naff, who is a doctoral candidate in Latin American and Iberian literature and languages in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese uh, here at the University of Texas at Austin and is a CSRD fellow. And also Jade Vasquez, or Vasquez, who's a MA candidate in global policy studies at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and a CSRD fellow as well. And we're going to be talking today about the research that they've been doing on Latinx citizenship in the United States. Um, first, welcome, Cassie, Jade. Thank you. Thanks. It's good to be here. I'm excited to have a conversation together and then hopefully spark a conversation outside of these doors. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I want to dive right in in terms of um, your research on Latinx citizenship. This is such a big deal in the run-up to the 2020 election. Um, we're in a state of Texas where there is such a huge population. On some levels, um, we're ground zero for what people are calling the browning of America and this idea that we're going to have more um, um, people of color in the majority as American citizens uh, by... Sometimes demographers say 2050, I'm going to ask you when the real date is. But that's really elicited a lot of both um, joy and backlash. This idea that, you know, the country is becoming more and more brown and really the key group voting demographic is going to be Latinx populations. I've seen data where it says... Um, uh, there's there's Latinx uh, populations are adding a million new voters um, a year, uh, you know, who are going to be eligible to vote. So my first question and this, you know, anybody can get, get into this is, you know, why is the uh, Latinx population um, seemingly booming? Why is it so important uh uh, to to do research on this population, um, and in in certain ways, why do they hold the key in the sense of to the future of American democracy? So I think that um, most of my research focused on Texas, uh, and right now Latinos make up forty percent of the population, and they will soon become um, the majority in the state. And I think well, my research focused on this term, the sleeping giant. I really wanted to unpack that because it's talking about, you know, the community as an emergent population, but it's low political participation. And it neglects two things. It neglects the citizenship status of Latinos. And it also ne neglects um, just voter suppression tactics of um, the black and brown community. And so I think we'll see a rise in those that are eligible to vote uh, in the Latino population because the Latino population uh, who are citizens are young. And so I think, you know, there is some data that is saying that by 2020, the next governor's race, uh, the population, because young voters, um, because of the young people that represent the Latino community will be eligible, eligible to vote, we'll see a rise in we'll just Texas rise. alone. Yeah, okay. yeah. Cassie? 
Yeah, and um, I looked up statistics from Pew Research in terms of uh, Hispanic representation in the United States because I think you brought up a good point about paying attention to those who are eligible to vote as well. Um, and so in terms of currently in 2018, I've read that Hispanics comprise about 17% of the U.S. population. And um, of that, or considering those 17%, um, Hispanics make up 12.8% of the electorate, which has been up from 10% in 2016. So we've seen an almost 3% increase just in the last two years. So they're almost on par with their percentage. Of representation in the United States. In the U.S. It's almost close to 17 currently. The electorate, they make up 12.8%. And how does that look for Texas when we think about eligible? So different between the population, but what's the eligible Um um, population of Latino voters in Texas. Yeah, so looking at a map, um, the way that Pew does it is those states that are over have at least 25% or more representation, and Texas is one of those, along with New Mexico and California. And what is our actual uh, voter turnout when you think about Latino versus that representation? Yeah, so something also that's interesting about 2008 midterm elections were that Hispanics... 2018. 2018, sorry, okay. not 2008. 2018, uh, where that we've seen a 50% Hispanic increase since, I believe, 2016. Um, but that Hispanics comprised 11% of voters. So they were um, eligibility pretty much on par. Okay, they were on par. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's very interesting because that actually goes away from what a lot of people are saying. And when we think about voter suppression, how many... I've heard that there's up to um, as many as 2 million unregistered Latino voters just in the state of Texas alone and about three quarters of a million African-American unregistered voters. Um, have you done any research on that in terms of the number of um, Latino voters in Texas or even nationally who are eligible? These are citizens, but who are just not registered to vote. So I personally haven't done research on that. And that's something, you know, that's something that I would have liked to explore more. Um, I wonder, too, about just the education and just access to, you know, registration booths and where are these registration booths? And um, I think that can have a, make a huge difference, right, in high schools, for example, especially because the Latino population is so young. That can have a major impact. But I don't think it's... Texas is a state that's interested in increased um, voter participation of uh, communities of color. And, and so I don't. Wh why do you say that? I want you to talk about what, when you say voter suppression, what specifically is happening um, right here uh, in the state of Texas that would lead one to say, hey, there's voter suppression of folks who would be eligible voters, especially communities of color, color, but especially Latino communities? So I would say there are two main things, and one is racial gerrymandering, and the second is uh, voter ID laws. And so... That's a big word, gerrymandering. What do you mean, Jade? <laughs> Tell us. Um, so with racial gerrymandering, there's two components, right? There's packing and there's cracking. Uh, so I'll start with cracking and cracking is taking people of color and cracking them to, into as many districts as possible where their votes won't make a difference and then packing is putting as many african-american and latino uh, voters into as few districts as possible and so gerrymandering supports um or at least it undermines the goal of it is to undermine the strength of the minority vote mm -hmm. and uh you know 
Latinos and communities of color often feel like their vote doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And these tactics further support that idea, right? Because it's not the, the voters that are determining their legislators. It's the legislators determining the voters. So gerrymandering basically either makes the Latino vote and the Black vote too diffuse to matter, or it makes it so concentrated that in the bigger scheme of things, it also doesn't matter. Right, right. And so... What else? What are the other tactics that are happening in terms of voter suppression? Are Latinos victims of the new Texas voter ID laws that have happened since the 2013 Shelby versus Holder Supreme Court decision, which really transformed the Voting Rights Act because there was no more preclearance from the federal government? So local municipalities could change whether it was voter ID or ballot boxes, and they didn't have to clear it with the Department of Justice anymore. And many states like North Carolina, like Texas, really adopted very, very strict, um, some would say punitive voter ID strategies uh, that seem designed to, again, um, tamp down uh, voter participation from people of color as well, including students. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, Texas is very strict voter ID laws have effectively disenfranchised Latino voters. Um, and they've, so there's this Texas Civil Rights Project, and they did this report that said in 2013, an estimated 600,000 registered Texans, Texans were unable to vote uh, because of the uh, voter ID laws. And it's because they lack sufficient identification. And so, and you know, voter ID in Texas. What, what is the specific identification that you need? Is it a state license? Is it, I know that Texas doesn't, doesn't accept, say, a University of Texas at Austin license but they'll, uh, or ID, but they'll accept um, a gun uh, if, you, if, you, if you have a gun ID as a, a registered gun owner. So what, what, are, what are some of the, the, the forms of ID that are accepted? And what, why, aren't, why don't Latinos have access to those forms of IDs, you think? So I know, for example, student IDs don't count. They don't um, count. You know, a driver's license, a passport. Um, you know, they're very specific on what IDs count. And I think not just Latinos, but communities of color, um, poor, poor people, uh, women, women, older folk. A, a lot of these groups don't have more than one um, identification. I think it really targets, you know, these like minor, poor minority voters, and so. Um, in terms of other IDs that count, I'm, I'm not sure wh- which ones are, but I just know because I'm coming from New York. Mm-hmm. And so I think about how strict, uh, you know, when you walk into a poll, like all these different identifications that you may have to show in Texas. I don't even show my ID in New York. I just say, tell them my address, number, and, and they trust that I will, uh, I will be the, I'm the person voting. <laughs> and so it's interesting how many different barriers uh, Texas um, puts on, you know, on people to vote while in other states that may have better representation of Latinos and uh, people of color, uh, they don't have that. Well, considering all these barriers, but the population of Latino voters in Texas, and this goes out to both of you, what do you think the prospects are for having statewide more Latino elected officials? Because we have, for instance, uh, the former mayor of San Antonio, Julian Castro, is running for president of the United States. But when we think about, um, we still have never had a Latino senator, um, uh, a Latino governor of the entire state. When we think about the ledge, it seems to be dominated by more white Anglo um, elected officials. Uh, what's, the, what's, the, 
what does it look like in terms of the outlook um, um, in in the state of Texas for Latinos? And then I'm going to um, ask about it nationally too. Okay. <laughs> um, so Julian Castro, I actually really like Julian Castro. I think he um, is speaking to issues that typically Democrats are afraid to speak on, especially around immigration mm-hmm. um, and U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. And so because he's from Texas, he has just, I think he's just more attuned to these issues. And because of his, because of who his constituents were when he was mayor, I think he's more attuned to these issues. Um, I know that he is polling um, in the general polls. He's polling around 10 in 10th place. Uh, but when they poll just Latino voters, he's polling in fourth place. That was an NBC poll that I saw today. He doesn't uh, have a lot of national recognition, but he's really well known in Texas. Right. Um, I think in a way, Beto O'Rourke has um, stolen some of his thunder yeah. because of the Senate race, yeah. um, which I guess on some levels um, people are upset against about because of this idea of white privilege and how Beto can come in and just sort of... Um, uh, reassert some kind of uh, just white political dominance at the very moment you've got um, Latinos like you know Julian and, and and Joaquin who are who are making waves, but we sort of go back to the same common denominator um, in terms of white politicians. Well, when you look at who is at, on the top of the polls, right at the top. Uh, they're all white men, right? Beto, so, Biden, Bernie. Yeah, <laughs> so that doesn't. Triple I mean, B's. that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and it's also like, who are they polling, right? And so I also, I always wonder. You know, I feel like you should always question who are the people that they're selecting in these. And uh, I mean, maybe it's a good representation of the population, or maybe it's not. But I feel like that's an important question to ask. Well, that dovetails in a question for both of you. What What do you think doing this research? What is Latino politics? Because in a way, when we think about this this term on the census, Hispanic, and when people talk about Latino, it, it, it is um, an amalgamation of these extraordinarily diverse groups of people, um, whether they're from Mexico or Central America or Latin America or the Caribbean, the outer America, South America, when we think about everywhere from Brazil to, to Argentina and different places. So what what does Latino mean to you doing this research? Yeah, so I guess I'll start. So I was thinking about, is there such thing as a quote-unquote Latino vote, um, given the cultural, geographical differences that exist, as you mentioned? Um, I would argue yes, if you look at uh, political leanings and voting and public opinion, similar public opinion on important issues that affect all of these groups. Um, And so... I want you to disaggregate that, Cassie. When you say political leanings, what do we find? Yeah, so uh, the first thing I'm talking about is a historical and current Latino majority that lean towards or identify with the Democratic Party. And these are uh, data taken from the Pew Research Center studies that find that despite um, geographic differences, that there is a similarity in terms of voting during the last elections, the presidential and congressional And how much is that identification? Like, what is it, 60%? Is it... Is it 70 percent? Is it is it a huge number or is it, um, you know, just above the majority? And I wonder, too, when we think about that, what are the issues that make Latino voters identify with one party over the other? Well, I think if you just think about the the 2016 elections and 
the percentage of Latinos that voted for Donald Trump, uh, that was under 30%. And I think that uh, in terms of the Republican-Democrat um, divided, it, that's pretty consistent. Uh, so I would say... And, so about two-thirds of Latinos consistently vote for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, I mean... Is that because of immigration? No, yes. Is it because of um, the Democratic Party's stance on issues of civil rights and racial justice? Um, why do you think that's so? Uh, I think in general, I read in a Pew report as well that uh, many Latinos believe that the Democratic Party, as opposed to the conservative party, have more of a concern for Latinos in general. Um, And then also that they... So although there might be concerns that the Latino communities could have differing opinions on, such as military initiatives or pro-life or pro-choice disagreements, but that they're united in their concern for immigration, bilingual education, and affirmative action. Very interesting. And when you think about those disagreements, I want to talk about that because I know as early as the first George H.W. presidency, there was a real um, reaching out on the part of the Republican Party for Latino voters. And certainly George W. Bush um, claimed proudly to speak some Spanish. And... um, um, wanted to make real inroads. And there was a, at least when you think about the Republican Party, the GOP made the claim, and I want to ask both of you, is this true, that at their core, Latinos were small C conservatives, meaning that they were pro-life, they were um, culturally conservative, they were pro-capitalist and um, wanted small businesses and entrepreneurship in their communities. They were faith-based people. They were very, very religious with uh, many of them being Christians, many of them being devout, devout Catholics, right? And so from that perspective, the GOP felt that they could make real inroads into that community. I want to know, one, is that true? And then my second question would be, well, what happened? Because this is sort of a GOP that wasn't necessarily attacking this issue of immigration in the same way that it does now. Well, I think that there is certainly a portion of the Latino population that will side with Republicans on those issues. Um, but, you know, I and this is me speaking for myself and my family, we're all pretty progressive. And and what's your background, Jade? We're, we're... So, so my, my family is from the Dominican Republic in Costa Rica, and I'm from New York City. And so it's, it's a large Latino population. Um, I would say... You know, and I think immigration is an important issue, but it's not the only issue that yes. Latinos care about, right? And it's not the only issue that Latinos are progressive uh, about, and so uh, or have progressive attitudes towards. And so I think you know we care about the economy, we mm-hmm. care about education, we care about immigration, we care about the environment. There's so many different things, and so you know it's 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 concerning that we are always kind of pigeonholed to this one issue, but. Uh, even though, I, I mean, for me, immigration and immigration reform is very important, but it's not the only issue I care about. And so um, I think that's what Democrats at least should be, you know, looking toward and ha- speaking to Latinos on these issues as well as immigration, right? Because we talk about the working class white voter as if Latinos don't make up a large percentage of the working class in America. And so, you know, we should be speaking to them on these issues always, not not just on one issue at one point in time, um, because it's convenient. And why do we think, the um, when we think about the fact that there was 
And in some ways, there still is an outreach by the Republican Party and conservatives for Latino voters. What do you think explains the pivot to such harsh anti-immigration language when we think about the current president of the United States and the 2016 election, and also the failed immigration reform bill that the Obama administration was able to pass in the Senate in 2013, but was unable to pass in the House of Representatives in the in, in that same year. Why the shift? Because immigration right now nationally is an absolute wedge issue. And in a way, you would think that that's going to hurt the GOP long term because of um, you're, you're not being able to cater to some Latino voters that might vote for you. But it seems like that long-term strategy has, has, has shifted and maybe the long-term strategy is more voter suppression um, to this burgeoning Latino giant than any kind of accommodation or reforms that would include immigration reform to then try to cultivate that as an electoral base. Yeah, I think that could be a strategy because uh, looking at recent data about uh, Hispanics overall, whether they um, what they thought about immigration and, uh, for example, building a wall to keep out undocumented Mexican immigrants, uh, 76% were not in um, support of that. And so I think that this anti, you know, Central American, Mexican uh, immigration is kind of backfiring and it's bringing more, I'm hoping bringing more people to the polls. And there was bipartisan support on, you know, passing immigration reform legislation. It's just that Donald Trump did not want to, you know, pass any sort of legislation that didn't include funding for a border wall. And I really think that, you know, this anti-immigration, um, you know, rhetoric and this border wall, I mean, it's really just a distraction um, and, you know, a way to scapegoat, you know, immigrants and Latinos or even, you know, discuss you know globalization as a whole like you know the foreigners are the problem not you know this rigged system that you know benefits the rich significantly more than the poor uh and so i think it's just a distraction i want to switch to and shift to policy when you think about daca and you think about dapa and certain things that the obama administration tried to do through executive order what can we do policy-wise given the constraints that we have in terms of the federal government right now and also just even statewide and locally. Because I think what's interesting about the last two years is the way both the rhetoric of the wall, but also the actions of um, immigration. ICE uh, has really, really impacted, when you think about immigration, customs enforcement, and this idea of putting um, Latino um, immigrants in cages and um, children and people who have died, people who have um, gone missing from parents and separated, which has been a huge political crisis, but a moral crisis. Yet, when you look at the polling data, the support for the president stays pretty consistent, even in spite of these things. What What are some policy? Um, what are some policy vehicles that can be used uh, in the future? And you know, one thing I'll ask: Do you think the Obama administration dropped the ball? by not trying to have comprehensive immigration reform in the first 100 days of that administration. When you think about 2009, after coming into the White House with almost 70 million votes, 
Um, and why not say that immigration reform was a national security issue, that immigration reform was as important as the bailouts. It was as important as saving the banks. We had to decide this issue and vote on this issue. Um, and it was as important as health care. So why not really have a comprehensive immigration bill the first hundred days? There are so many good questions. <laughs> um, okay, so I think uh, with DACA um, and Obama, you know, for today, as you know, who is in office now? What can they do today? And what they've tried to do is turn an executive order um, into a bill and try to pass it as legislation through Congress. I think that's what needs to happen, and that um, and they need to and Congress needs to create a pathway to citizenship, especially um, for. Dreamers and DACA recipients, um, and I would say, I mean, I I think Obama did drop the ball, and you know that is not to say that he didn't have other really important priorities, and I also think it was a political strategy, uh, and so I think the healthcare was like a really um, important, a really you know number one priority on on his agenda, right? Uh, and I think that was also a very controversial issue. And I think when you think about immigration reform, um, there's going to be a backlash if you folk if you make that a priority. There's going to be a backlash um, for American citizens, you know, who think that there are other more much more important issues um, relating to the economy. And so to prioritize that over everything else, I think could have hurt him in the um in in the 2012 elections but then then he he lost the house of representatives in 2010 because of the tea party but he also lost because his own people didn't come out his own supporters wouldn't have potentially bolstered his support um because the, the obama administration lost the house of representatives in 2010 and then lost the u.s senate uh in 2014 uh, which which made it impossible to put Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court in 2015-16. So uh, I guess one uh, counterfactual is that perhaps comprehensive immigration reform, along with other packages that were passed, might have actually bolstered support from progressives. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know what his political strategy was at the time, uh, and hindsight's twenty twenty. but, um, you know, if you think about, if he was able to pass immigration reform uh, in his first hundred days or in his first four years, that would definitely have more positive implications today for the Democratic Party um, if he, you know, if he hadn't, as we've seen in the 2016 elections um, or even in the 2012-2014 elections as well. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I would have loved for him to pass immigration reform, and I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes and in his team's shoes. And I was, I'm just thinking about like the, what the political strategy was, and I just know that that was an argument. Um, well, I think that the political strategy was that this would hurt him, but what you see happen 2009, 2010, he was hurt anyway, and even though he passes health care all on party lines, they still lose the House of Representatives. So whatever they did... Um, really didn't work. I mean, the only thing that worked was he was able to get reelected and, and he was able to pass um, then a series of executive orders that since got re reversed um, with, a, with a new Republican president. I also think that there's more of an awareness now um, between among um, young voters, among voters of color about the importance of midterm elections. Mm -hmm. um, I think there, you know, there's always been a larger turnout for presidential races than there have been for um, governor's races and um, midterms. Yeah, yeah, midterms, you know, senators and things like that. And I think the, the 2016 election, uh, you know, it was just like a real shock to people and it. 
you know, made us get our act together. And so I, and you can see that in the difference in the 2018 elections. And the Latino vote actually in the 2018 uh, elections, according to the Democratic, let me see what it was, the Democratic um, Congressional Campaign Committee, the Latino vote in, in 2018 increased by 174%. That's huge. And so... I th- and and uh, there, there's, there's groups like Voto Latino and all these turnout. My, my final question really is about that. Um, what do young Latino voters, what are they interested in, including potential voters right here in the city of Austin, on the campus of University of Texas at Austin? What are the issues that are going to grip them, which is going to be really so important to the United States of America? Because if we're getting a million new 18-year-old Latinos a year for the next 10 years, that's going to be, if they all vote, they're going to be one of the most important voting blocks in the country. Um, What are they interested in? What do they want? So I'm going to speak for myself <laughs> because I would consider myself a young Latina voter. Um, I think, you know, care about jobs. Uh, we care about debt-free college. Uh, we care about climate change. We care about immigration reform, especially, you know, when you think about your your brothers and sisters and cousins and aunties. Like, and when you think about them and the fact that they're unable to, to vote uh, for certain reasons, you know, I, I empathize and I would want... So that's for me why why I personally want um, immigration reform. Um, so I mean, for me, education, the economy, the environment, immigration. So it's personal and political, Cassie. Yeah, I just wanted to add about um, when we were talking about groups that are could be eligible in the future for voting. I think we should also talk about those who are eligible for naturalization, um, but that who aren't naturalizing. So um, of the Mexican or origin immigrants who can naturalize, only 36% are naturalizing. And so I just kind of imagine a future, what would that look like if those who are on a path towards citizenship are ready, if they um, start um, or thinking about the barriers that get in the way, which is usually financial, $680 filing fee, for example, um, and for fingerprints or language is a barrier. Mm. Uh, You have to be able to, quote, speak, write, read, and understand basic English. And so I think also um, language proficiency is an issue that's going on. And I'm just curious about if those barriers were lowered or um, if uh, this community were able to kind of meet those requirements, what that would look like in the future. So I'm just curious about the role that language proficiency plays in, like, um, keeping people away from civil and political rights voting. And we're in the state. Uh, Barbara Jordan, our former rep, uh, was the person who extended the Voting Rights Act in 1975 and co-sponsored that bill, which made it possible to have um, bilingual uh, uh, materials um, in all the the, the polls in Texas and Southwest uh, parts of the United States. So I think bilingual education is really hugely important. I also had some... Some data that, you know, because I'm new to Texas, I wanted to compare uh, some of the data that I have from New York and in the U.S. as a whole. Um, so I focused on uh, U.S. numbers in U.S. Congress, House of Representatives. So Texas uh, currently has 36 seats. And of those seats, only five are held by uh, Latino representatives. And Latinos make up 40% of the state population. So that's about 14% representation. So out of mm. 40%, they have 14% representation. Uh, meanwhile, in New York, they have 27 seats. And five of those are held by Latino reps. Latinos in New York make up 19% of the 
population. And they also account for about 19% of representation in mm-hmm. Congress. And then in total, there are 46 Latino, Hispanic um, representatives in Congress, in U.S. Congress. And so that's about 8.5% of the total, um, the total membership in Congress. While um, in the U.S., Latinos make up 18% of the population. And so there is some disparity there, oh, but yeah. it's pretty egregious in Texas. And I would say it's attributed to the voter ID, gerrymandering um, tactics that they've imposed. How many Latino-identified senators do we have? Do we know? In total? Yes. We have, I believe, five in the Senate. Okay, five in the Senate. And that's, I wonder what the percentage of that is. Well, there's 100 senators, so that's only... That's only 5%. So we're we're under um, performing there, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, um, this has been a great conversation. We'll leave it there um, with Jade Vasquez, who's an MA candidate in global policy studies at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, and Cassie Marie Naff, who's a doctoral candidate in Latin American and Iberian literature and languages in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese here at University of Texas at Austin, and both are graduate fellows at the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. We've been discussing Latino politics and really how do we define uh, Latino politics? Um, what are some of the barriers uh, for for Latino citizens really exercising their democratic rights, both in the state of Texas and nationally? And really, what is the future of the browning of America going to how is that going to look for, for, for all of us? Um, thank you. Thank you for joining us here at Race thank and Democracy. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.